Welcome to Historical Jesus. I'm Mark Vinette. Three Kings Day, also known as Epiphany, is a special date for many Christians, as it's when the faithful celebrate how a bright star in the sky led the Magi, also known as the Three Wise Men, to visit the baby Jesus after he had been born. But how do we separate myth from fact in ancient history? How do we do this when it comes down to one of the most beloved and well-known stories of all time, the Nativity? Let's join Scott Rank of the History Unplugged podcast and find out. What Father Longenecker has done is looked into the three wise men. The story of the Magi that appear in the Nativity story of Jesus, there are a lot of embellishments to the story. The Matthew account never mentions that there are three of them. He just says that they are wise men from the east who see a star and go to Jerusalem and wind up in Bethlehem. There's been a lot of details added to the story over the centuries. Names are given to these three kings, Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar, who come from Arabia, Africa, and India. But the thing is, the original story never says they come on camels, and there's not a suggestion that a star even leads them to Bethlehem. Furthermore, most biblical scholars would deconstruct the text and say that the three wise men don't even exist. It's just a later embellishment added to the story to give a prophetic coding to Jesus and to announce him as the Messiah. These would be scholars that would use a deconstructionist tradition that would typically throw out the supernatural. Well, what Father Longenecker has done is pretty fascinating. He's decided to look at what could be the historical reality of the Magi. What he's done is look at the history and look at the politics of the area of Judea in the first century and found that there very well could be a place where the so-called Magi could have come from. And it's not Persia. It's not the Orient, as the song goes, but Nabatea, this huge civilization that existed south of Judea and traded all throughout Arabia and the Near East, and they built all sorts of structures, like in Petra, Jordan. So it gives a whole new different historical perspective to something that a lot of people consider just to be a myth. Father Longenecker, who are the Nabataeans, and how do you think that they've connected to the real nativity story? When I dug into the history of the Nabataeans, it just got interestinger and interestinger. The Nabataeans are this mysterious civilization who didn't leave any written record of their history. And this is a mystery to the historians. Therefore, we have to piece together from graffiti, archaeological finds, a few scraps of writing about the Nabataeans, which are extant in contemporary historians, Greek and Roman historians. But there's very little to go by. But the more you piece together the history, the more interesting it becomes. So first of all, if we go back to the 6th century B.C., Arabia is occupied by various different nomadic tribes, the Edomite, the Nebioth, and various others. And most of these nomadic tribes in the Arabian Peninsula trace their roots back to Abraham. In one way or other, they say that they are descended from Abraham. Maybe they're descendants of his son Isaac or descendants from his illegitimate son Ishmael. And so they have already got a very ancient type of Hebrew Abrahamic type religion. This is where the Jews also wandered on their way to Cana, to the Promised Land. So this is all deeply Abrahamic and Jewish in its ancestry. And then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the Neo-Babylonian monarch from the area of Persia, which is present-day Iraq, invades northern Arabia and then goes on and conquers Jerusalem and destroys Jerusalem, and the Jews are dispersed. We talk about this, call it the exile. 
we think the Jews were exiled to Babylon, an awful lot of the Jews also escaped into northern Arabia. So they joined in with these Arabian tribes that were already there. The third element is that the Babylonians themselves occupied Arabia. King Nabonidus was the last of the Neo-Babylonian kings. He was very interested in Judaism. So you have these three elements, the Arabian Abrahamic tribes, the Jews in exile, and then the Neo-Babylonians. And the Babylonians brought the Magi traditions of astrology, esoteric religion, science, astronomy, mathematics, all these developing arts and sciences and religion came in with the Babylonian Magi into Northern Arabia. And these three factors contributed to the rise of the Nabataean civilization. So that 500 years later, the time of the birth of Christ, you find this thriving, fabulously wealthy civilization there in Northern Arabia. What you just described there is a really good description also of population movements, how people move around and the dispersal of the Jewish people after exile. Part of what gets them into places like Ethiopia. So in Israel, you'll see people that, for all intents and purposes, look African, but are fighting in the Israeli army. And when I look at accounts of the rise of Islam, it'll mention Jewish people all throughout Arabia, in down into the peninsula where Mecca and Medina are. And I think, how did they get down there? There are records that there were Jewish settlements and colonies right down in what is now Yemen, which was the kingdom of Saba. And also that they were very populous in Medina, as you say, but also in the the oasis town of Tama, King Nabonidus from Babylon, actually settled in Tama for 10 years and was known to have Jewish mercenaries and Jewish prophets there. One writer actually thinks that the second part of the prophet Isaiah was written from Tama, from a Jewish colony in Arabia. Did they mostly retain their Jewish identity and religion living here, or did it become something like the Samaritans, where it's not quite the Orthodox practice? They retained what the British scholar Margaret Barker calls a first temple Judaism. This was a simpler Judaism based more in the Abrahamic religion of faith than the later second temple Judaism, which was much more based in the Mosaic law. And that was a sort of Judaism which would have been in Jerusalem and Israel at the time of Christ's life. So the ones who escaped into Arabia would have mingled with the Abrahamic tribes who were already there and found a very congenial environment. There are elements of the Nabataean religion, for instance, which connect very well with Judaism. For instance, they have a prohibition of idols, and they had, instead of an idol, they would have a square block of stone, of rock, which was called a betel. And, of course, that connects with the story in the Old Testament of Jacob, who saw the angels going up and down on the stairway to heaven, and he set up a rock in that place and called it Bethel. So there's all sorts of connections like that, which are fascinating. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Just geography-wise, so the Nabataeans, once they sort of coalesce as a people, as you described, 
So this would be south of Israel in modern nation-state terminology. About what countries would it correspond to? Nowadays, it's the country of Jordan and Jordan and northwest Saudi Arabia. Okay, and they're moving around. You said they were traders and they're going around Mm -hmm. a lot in those areas. Yeah, the trading aspect is fascinating because they were fabulously wealthy because they controlled the trade routes across the Arabian Peninsula, basically coming from the port of Yemen up across to the north and to the west across the Arabian Peninsula. Petra was a crossroads. And from Petra, you continued west across Judea to the port of Gaza, where you unloaded your camels on ships across the Mediterranean to the rest of the empire. But also there was another trade route which went from Egypt in the south, north to Damascus, and then up through Syria. And it also went through Petra. So Petra was the crossroads of these two trade routes. This time in history, I think this is after the Hellenic or Hellenistic age when there's this whole new level of east-west integration and carrying things overland is hard. I mean, you really have to have a lot of draft and pack animals. So if you can do this, there's a lot of money to be had. They have a logistic system across the desert. And the way they were able to monopolize and control it all, of course, was through water. They had a very sophisticated hydraulics system where they engineered the control and the flow of water. They built these wonderful funnel-like systems in the earth, which caught the rainwater and funneled it down into underground cisterns. And then they then covered it up and kept them secret. So, for instance, whenever the military tried to take over the Nabataeans, they just retreated further into the desert to their various secret water cisterns and let their enemies die of thirst, basically. And when they were weakened and starving, they would then turn around and ride down with their camels and attack. Wow. And that's why empires really never bothered trying to conquer Arabia, because if you have an army, a desert is the worst place to be if you want to control it. One of the first military exploits, which is recorded, was one of Alexander the Great's generals, Antigonus the One-Eyed, was told to go in and conquer the Nabataeans, and he marched in with his army, and that's exactly what happened. They pulled back and retreated to their high places and to their secret cisterns and drew them further and further into the desert and then turned on them. Yeah, it's a theme that comes up with chronicles about the rise of Islam, that part of what they could take advantage of military strategy is that they're fighting Byzantines that have to water their horses or pack animals. And if you're more used to arid climates and can just retreat back, then you've got a whole terrain advantage. So Nabataean traders, are they, um, first of all, are they going about by caravans with all their camels that they're packing on? How do they transport all these trade items? There's records right back through to the Assyrian civilization. We're talking about the 7th and 8th centuries BC. There's records of the Assyrian kings demanding tribute gifts of hundreds of camels from the Arabian tribes. This is pre-Nabataean days. Right back then, they were famous for taming camels, breeding camels, trading with camels, and using camels as pack animals across the desert. And what kind of things would they typically trade in these different cities that they traveled between? It was just incredible. They were taking silk and spices and glass and pottery and all sorts of things from India and China, which had come across the Indian Ocean to the port of Yemen. And this is the most important thing for the Magi. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were their cash crops. Frankincense and myrrh are both taken from the gum of bushes that only grow in the Arabian Peninsula and East Africa. And so they had a monopoly on frankincense and myrrh, but also Arabia was famous in the ancient times for gold mines. 
You've probably heard of the gold mines of Solomon. Right, right. Well, archaeologists have found these in northern Arabia, the remains of these fantastic gold mines, which were there, and also in present-day Somalia. They've discovered gold mines from the 8th century from the Queen of Sheba. And so gold, frankincense, and myrrh were basically the cash crops of the Nabataeans, but they were also trading goods from India and China. And then on the return journey, they were bringing bitumen from the Dead Sea. They were bringing Damask from Damascus. They were bringing gauze from Gaza. They were bringing pearls. They were bringing all sorts of riches from the West back across the desert to go back on those boats to India and China. The Gulf of Yemen is a major trade point going all the way back to the very ancient world. Why didn't ships just go up the Gulf of Suez all the way up to the Sinai Peninsula? Because traveling by ship has always been much cheaper than traveling over land. Traveling over land is very difficult, very expensive. And like you said, part of why Nabataeans could be rich because they could monopolize this difficult thing of carrying thousands of pounds over the desert, which is much easier. So why didn't ships just go all the way up? Well, the answer is they did. The Nabataeans also had shipping routes that were going up the Red Sea and Suez and so forth. But the problem was it was more vulnerable because the Egyptians had ships out there as well, and they were pirating each other, mm. a bit like the Spanish and the English in the 16th century. Basically, the Nabataeans found that their trade routes across the desert were actually more secure. In addition to the secret cisterns I spoke about, their routes followed mountaintops and down into narrow wadi and valleys so that they were actually very difficult to attack by bandits because of their not only the secret cisterns, but also the way they actually wended through the desert. And the ships, in comparison, were subject to shipwreck. They were subject to stormy weather. They were also subject to pirates. So although they did have shipping, the camel caravans were more controllable and more secure. And if you're a highwayman, you're probably not able to hang out in the desert for weeks on end waiting for a caravan. And if you do, you probably can't attack a whole caravan. So yeah, that's a good safety measure. I think also the simple economic factor is I believe the shippers were, were not Nabataeans. And so you have an extra middleman there. And if you can cut out that middleman by your own camels, your profit margins increase. I'm Mark Vinette. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text history that's H I S T O R Y using the code 30605.